came to realize that what started out as a natural disaster became a man-made disaster. We cannot control the natural disaster, but what we can do is control our response. Have you ever wondered whether disasters are actually natural? If so, you're in the right place. Hello and welcome. My name is Jason von Medding. And I am Xenia Chmutina. This is Disasters Deconstructed, a podcast where we examine why disasters really happen. Thank you for tuning in. Welcome to another episode of Disasters Deconstructed. Today we're going to talk about academic publishing and the process of academic publishing and also challenges. You know, we've been talking a lot about the narrative of disasters and different outputs and outlets uh, for these narratives. But whilst we mention academia quite a lot, we've never really unpacked what academic publications are, you know, and how they come about. Today, to discuss this really important topic, we wanted to speak to an open access journal editor. So because we're discussing the disaster field, we naturally invited Dewald Van Niekerk. He's the editor-in-chief of JAMBA, the Journal of Disaster Risk Studies. He's joining us today. Dewald is a professor of disaster studies at Northwest University in South Africa and a, a favorite disaster scholar of ours. Welcome, Dewald. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. So we wanted to talk to you today, Dewald, with your editor of the journal hat on. So for you, what makes a good publication in disaster studies? Who writes it and how and for whom? I know it's probably not only about the scientific intrigue and rigor. There's probably more to it than that, right? Oh, absolutely. Um, <clears throat> I think for me, the most interesting articles are the good ones. Um, those are the ones that can merge uh, real-world problems with uh, a scientific base um, and understanding a scientific process that's been followed. And that's well-written and in most cases, very written in very elementary and easy to understand English. Mm. Um, for us, that's very important because English is a foreign language for everyone in Africa. Um, so, and a lot of the publishing must happen in English. So, if you constrain people to publish and using, uh, you know, the most high British English you can think of, yeah. it, it makes it extremely difficult to sometimes understand. So, I think simplicity in an article to me makes a really good publication. Mm. And what about kind of um, like the the authors? Like, is it important to have um, authors from outside of the West, so to say? <laughs> do, you, do you is that something important for your journal? Oh, not at all. Um, I mean, f for us, the the most important thing is uh, to give account of of good research, and that comes from from various avenues and various um, sectors. Uh, um, within Africa and also abroad. We don't only just publish um, research from Africa. We, we publish from the Global South and uh, sometimes even further than that. Uh, so the, the writers mostly of these type of articles are your academics and your researchers. Mm. Um, you must remember that in, in Africa, we haven't had a, a very long history of uh, publication linked to your promotion within the academic sector, etc. It is becoming more important. And I think it, the, lots of universities are driving more towards getting your research published. But there's quite a lot that I've seen coming out of normal um, field studies that's extremely interesting, but that's not being published. And most of the time what happens um, is that your, your lower to mid-career 
uh, academics are very threatened to publish. Um, they, they feel that uh, they can't compete internationally. And that's a bit of, of a problem. But what we've seen with, with Jamba, the, um, a good academic article also makes, uh, is made by a good team. So very rarely have I seen excellent first author, only author articles coming from, from junior academics. So in, in teaming up and getting a lot of eyes on the, on the, the research, um, there's also a mentoring and learning process that happens. Mm. And uh, in general, most of our really good articles, I would say, is multi-authored. Um, and it's, like I said, it's, it's simple and addresses one very specific kind of research problem. Yeah, I think the, I think Jamba is, um, a journal that publishes a lot of, on a lot of topics that are missing from some of the other disaster journals. And it's a journal I always really enjoy seeing what's uh, coming out of. So congratulations on the journal for sure. Okay, thank you very much. Now we try. Uh, I think that was one of our philosophy <clears throat> from the start was um, to say disaster risk science is a, a multidisciplinary, um, you have to have a multidisciplinary perspective. And therefore we, we, we try and draw our kind of circle around our topics quite wide to accommodate mm. many disciplines, not just people coming from disaster su- studies or disaster sciences. Yeah, and, you know, multidisciplinarity is something that we want to come back to um, in a few minutes' time. But first, I also want to say that Jamba is that rare exception in that it is open access, right? We don't really have journals and disaster studies that are open access. And... So for non-academics out there, you know, some of you may not realize that actually sometimes you publish a paper and then actually it's very difficult to access it because the research is behind the paywall. And just before we started recording, Jason was saying that, you know, he can't access his own publication. And I think we've all been in these ridiculous situations where uh, there is particular moratorium on a paper and you just can't access it unless you've paid for open access. So as an editor of the journal and also as an academic Dewald, what is your view on open access and on closed access? Celia, um, I mean, the, the nature of what we are studying um, just makes it, to me, it was just a logical step to ensure open access. I mean, you're talking about disaster risk and issues that affect people's lives and livelihoods. And um, when we started the journal, that was one of the things we said is that we, we can't lock up our research behind uh, a paywall or in some form or format that does not allow a wide audience to access it. Now, personally, um, I mean, the, there's two sides. It's a very difficult conversation, actually. There's always two sides to a coin. Eh? So, um, open access does not mean free. And I think a lot of people miss that. A lot right. of academics probably miss that. They think if I publish um, open access, it's not going to cost me any, anything. Um, you know, there's, there's always a cost to this. I'll talk to to what our model is is in a second. But um, when it comes to open access, we must look at the users of the research. And and in that sense, uh, I feel very strongly that the journals must be open access. Uh, You as academics know you spend a lot of time doing your research. You're out in the field. There's a a huge commitment sometimes. It takes forever and a day to write up certain research, um, such work with certain data. Then you go through this whole process of developing a, a, an article that, that you can publish in a, in a peer-reviewed journal. And um, once you've done that, and this knowledge to be locked, not for the, the public to see, does not make sense in my mind whatsoever. In um, the case of South Africa, and I think in your case as well, a lot of universities 
are being paid by public funds. So you can make the argument why can't the public have access to the funds or to the to the research that was funded by their tax money? So that's that's one point of a part of the argument. The other argument is still what I've said. Someone needs to pay. <laughs> it's it's a, it's a kind of a costly <laughs> system. You, you have systems to run and um, you have uh, language editors to pay sometimes. Uh, there's administra- administration costs, etc. So there's, there's always some, some kind of a, a feeling to this, unfortunately. But like I said, the, we must look at it from the other side to say that the, the user of the knowledge at the end of the day are people that might not have the financial resources to access this information and the fact that they can get open access and free access to this could mean changing lives, reducing risk, um, you know, building resilience. It could go a long way. Yeah, you know, I absolutely agree with you in that our publications should be open access because, well, most of our research is publicly funded, right? The kind of the research money come from tax taxpayer um, very often. Um, but I also wonder, do you think general public would actually engage with academic publications? Uh, because, well, um, as we all know, academics are not necessarily very good at writing in accessible way. <laughs> when it comes to academic publications. <laughs> I think this comes back to your first question, what makes a good publication? <laughs> a good publication is the one that the, the majority of the, the uh, public can understand if they've got a bit of knowledge in what you're saying. Um, and uh, this is an age-old discussion as well, is how to make science accessible to the general public. Hmm. Now, in some instances, yes, these, if you're working with a, a extreme statistical heavy um, research project, um, if people do not have this understanding of statistics and how you've, you've gone about working with your data, it's going to be complex and it's going to be very difficult for them. But um, that are normally people that your general public won't be much interested in that. But what they are interested in are the, the kind of topics that could change their life, something that they have an interest in, which um, with their, let's say, uh, limited knowledge on the subject field could mean something for them. It could be something that they're looking for in change, trying to change their business or, uh, let's say, trying to change some kind of development within their communities. And if your scientific um, articles are written in such a way that people can understand and internalize it, that makes a really good a good article um, at the end of the day. And um, we must remember that uh, the, the pot of money that's out there also becomes smaller and smaller and more competitive to, to access. And um, having a lot of your research funds being set aside um, so that you can ensure your, your publications are read out there. Also, it's got a, a massive impact and it discourages a lot of junior academics to engage as well because they feel it's such an uphill battle. After I've done all of this, um, I still need to go through all of these other steps just to get my research published. So I mean, for open, going open access, yeah, in my mind, it's, it's probably feasible uh, for most journals, but what we also now remember is that a lot of the journals functions under the publication house, and they've bought up journals, and they're in it for the money. They have to make money, like any other business, and therefore, for to have a model that um, accommodates that kind of thinking is sometimes difficult because profit at the end of the day drives the decisions of the publication houses. I was thinking 
while you were speaking there to Walt about um, this issue of getting the knowledge into the hands of the people that are actually going to use it, because a lot of a lot of science um, never actually reaches the people that would use it, right? So mm-hmm. we might be talking about you. You're mentioning community development um, and businesses. I mean, much of what they receive or use is kind of a interpretation of the data, maybe coming from the media or from some other source, rather than looking directly at the research that you did. So seems to me like that's a, a really like there's there's two sides to this. It's like it's really important to be have it accessible, and it's really important to be communicated in a in a way that can be understood as well. Um, mm-hmm. So I guess what some some science communicators would um, write in in different outlets in less technical style, right? In, in more kind of journalism, depending on the audience, but. Like what I've found in trying to do that in, in the last several years is that I changed the way I wrote in academic outlets as well because I, became, I just became a, a better at communicating by actually experimenting and actually doing it. I mean, do you feel like a lot of researchers um, miss out on, on that because they feel constrained in communicating in one particular style like in whatever silo and whatever discipline they're in um in the in the journals where nobody ever talks to them about their work except other researchers right um a lot of a lot of a lot of people never have the experience of actually talking to the public or talking to policymakers or businesses about their work do they yeah no that's very true uh, you, you cater for a certain audience, and that audience, many times, like you said, you is it's other, other academics. You're talking to mm. them because you want to get your work cited. Because citations means people are seeing your work. You can yeah. show your managers, look, I've got an impact out there, and this is also all part of of building your career. But I think what you're saying is is so important, Jason. Is that um, there must be a balance between your academic writing and the other stuff that you do. Yeah, and the other stuff is is to have a, a media presence. Um, no, it might not only just be in writing, but it, it must be in engaging the media. Whether it is, um, you know, doing an interview for, for a radio station or, um, like I said, writing in a, for a popular journal or an article for a newspaper or so on. Mm-hmm. Um, because for academics, you also need to build that side of your, your profile. And it's not to say that you want to put yourself out there as I'm the best out there and I'm the, this absolute expert. There's always someone that knows a lot more than you. But yeah. it's important to, to build that. And if people don't, um, if they can't link your name to the field of study, you won't be approached. Now, in our university, what they did was they created um, like a database of, of what they call the experts. And a lot of the media houses would go to, if they're looking for a certain topic, they would go to our website and find the expert and then invite them for interview or, or whatever the case may be. And I um, was absolutely amazed from the point where they did this, talking to my colleagues, how quickly this picked up. Because what mm. we must also remember within the academic sector, it carries in many countries, your academics carries um, a lot of credibility yeah. just because of the meticulous way we do research. And people listen to academics. Um, this COVID-19 um, pandemic in which we found ourselves is such an excellent example. I mean, one of my friends joked the other day and said, we've got um, Professor Facebook and, and Dr. YouTube. <laughs> people are basically basing the the knowledge on COVID, what they read on Facebook and on YouTube. But what I've seen is that there's a lot of people that actually now go to the academic literature to find answers. 
Because for a few weeks, you could fool many people with all, all kinds of videos and all kinds of information out there. And then people started to be more critical and ask, but what does the science say? <laughs> and I could bet you that there's a lot of people that ran into these paywalls that couldn't get access to the answers they wanted, except by paying $40 or whatever the case may be for that article. Yeah. <clears throat> but that being said, is um, for academics, we, we need to engage with, with the public. It's part of, of our duties is to explain in very easy terms what our research found and why this is important to the people out there. I, and I hope this we would see more of this because I, you know, I still think there are quite a few academics out there who make it almost their kind of life's job to make their research impenetrable, almost, you know, even for fellow academics. Um, <laughs> I've spoken once to um, somebody whose work, you know, is kind of presumed to be very clever but never been cited. I just, you know, I asked why haven't you been cited, and he said, "Well, because my work is so clever that nobody understands it." <laughs> And I was just like, well, great, you know, this is wonderful. Um, but after reading the abstract of his paper, you know, I, I, the only word I understand was and and the. <laughs> and it, it was quite, quite a fascinating experience. <laughs> it, it, it is quite funny. I mean, the purpose of writing an article is, is obviously to, to put your research out there and, and engage people in some kind of conversation. And, and obviously, I think very important is to get critique on what you are doing. Right. Um, because we don't all have the, the final and absolute truth. And, uh, and to write something that's so difficult to understand, obviously, if you, let's say you, you give this to a student to, to read, they're going to go up to sec second sentence of the abstract and lose interest in it. Now, what are you doing as an academic by, by doing something like that? And that? I think it comes back to my very first point of something that's very simple and easy to understand makes a really good article. Mm. Right. Okay, so let's talk about peer review because um, I, I find that um, because of our field's diversity, um, a lot of papers in disaster studies get a range of reviews, um, which can be very positive or very negative. And sometimes the comments are driven by the disciplinary background of the reviewer. So um, we always um, argue that interdisciplinarity is important for disaster studies, right? But we do also find in the peer review process that the silos can come to the surface very fast. And so what do you think we can be doing in disaster studies to become maybe more aware of other disciplines and approaches to research? Oh, Jason, it's a very important thing that you, you're highlighting now. The thing is, uh, it's something that young academics can learn is to write for a journal. Don't write an article and then try and get it published somewhere. And I think that's where the first mistake comes in. Mm. You sometimes with this, this awesome piece of, of research and you aim for the highly cited journal that you can find. And then you realize that, okay, this doesn't 100% fit and you try and reverse engineer your article to fit the journal. Mm -hmm. And that just messes everything up. And that is where the problem comes in where you are, let's, let's use a concept like resilience. You find this, this journal on, on, on social and community studies and you wrote something on community resilience, you want to publish it there just to realize after a while that they're only focusing on, on psychological issues in terms mm. of resilience. So your whole article doesn't fit there, although the name of the journal might suggest it. So my first 
a piece of advice would be is find a journal that is a credible journal, obviously, and it's, it's fairly easy to find that. And read a few articles, look at the general trend of the type of uh, writing that is being used there, and look at what's a theoretical foundation. Because remember from disaster studies, what makes our field of study so interesting is, is that you can go beg, borrow, and steal theories and a theoretical grounding from anywhere. Mm-hmm. It all depends on how you're going to focus on it. And if you understand it, obviously incorporate it. I mean, don't, don't go mm-hmm. and find something that you've got no knowledge on and work with that. Um, but then you can incorporate that on that specific focus. Um, disaster risk science is, is fairly new if you look at some of the other disciplines. So what we must remember is people, many reviewers, feel comfortable with a body of theory. And if we can use all the, the many theories out there and understand how uh, this explains a phenomenon to us and you can incorporate it, you're opening up your multi and your transdisciplinary focus just a bit more. So mm-hmm. go go find that the journal set is interesting that you want to write in, but also understand what goes into the journal. So it's, you know, I've seen many of my colleagues, they've got a recipe that they follow. Mm-hmm. And it's like a cookie cutter recipe. And they churn them out and there's 10 journals in which they publish in and that's it. They feel comfortable with it. It's not so difficult to get published and so on. But if you look at the, at the citations and the reach, it kind of declines after a while. Because yeah. it's the same kind of readership. But for us, for our research to be... Um, to become live and relevant is that we, we must open up and go find the other journals. They're not going to come to us. People that don't understand disaster studies, disaster risk science, is not going to look, oh, Jumbo, let's see what this is about. No, they want to read something that's within their field. So if we can cross those boundaries into other disciplines, but remain true to that discipline, in other words, bring them in, then we're going to make huge progress. And that is also where you can team up with your, your non-traditional academics um, knowledge creators that's not necessarily an academic but uh, maybe a practitioner as a, as a, a co-author that's going to give you an interesting perspective and then also with academics in that field what I will always try and do is, is ask if I'm doing this article I'm writing now about urban resilience I'm not an urban planner let me try and get one of my colleagues in that also has got an eye from that side on the research mm. and that makes for interesting boiling pot and 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 writing. I think that's such a good point. And I, it happens kind of naturally in our field because you, you often have these collaborations um, between different disciplines or between academia and practice. Um, and the, we, you kind of naturally target journals maybe that you never published in before, right? And you, you end up um, exploring what they're publishing and, and looking at the, how you need to, t- to, uh, frame your arguments right um Mm -hmm. so it's something kind of um really quite cool that we do um quite naturally in in a interdisciplinary field so i was wondering do you think that that things are um you know growing in a good direction with within the field in terms of new um, researchers coming in and the training that they're being provided do you think that's allowing new researchers coming into disaster studies to appreciate some of these um, nuances about publishing? I think so. Um, what I've seen the past 10 years, um, especially in the subcontinent, of Africa subcontinent, there's a lot of young researchers that's now trying to get their work published and that's publishing quite a lot. Um, and it's, it's something that we haven't seen um, in, in many years previously. As If you use an example, of, let's say Zimbabwe, the Scholars coming out of Zimbabwe are prolific 
publishers, they are writing such a lot and they're writing good stuff. Mm. Um, and they've, they've had this always this kind of a culture of putting it out. It's almost like the Nigerians as well. Nigerian scholars are very focused on communicating what they're doing. So a lot of them has got a lot of publications. Some of them might not be peer-reviewed. Some of them might be in books and, and, and all kinds of other formats. But they're constantly publishing. Mm. And uh, within the, the sub-Saharan Africa, there's definitely a, a strong culture of, of being published. But I see this happening more and more. And the interesting part is it's younger scholars that's coming through, and particularly women, that's coming through um, and now being, that, that's now being published and, and publishing on a wide variety of, of different topics. And I think it's absolutely wonderful. So what we try to do with um, the journal as well is to encourage our, all the scholars through our networks to say, yeah, guys, if you've got a, a very good PhD student or a master's student that's working an interesting thing, try and publish one of the chapters, um, at least as an article, you know, try and send this to us or as an interest paper, whatever the case may be. And let's see if we can get this going. And mm. we've been quite successful in, in you know, attracting people that, that does that. Once they realize they can do this, they just fly. I think it's just so important to spot early career researchers um, in their publications because they really have to jump lots of hoops. I mean, all of us have to jump lots of hoops, you know, but particularly it must be scary for early career researchers. So in, on top of the um, financial barriers, right, either to open access or to then removing the open access in terms of kind of career ambition, ambitions and all the metrics, the SNEEP and impact factor and all that, all that that comes with different journals, right? There is also pressure of being effective and having made your communications meaningful. So how should early career researchers kind of combine all this together in order to thrive in their academic careers, but also not being, you know, not being hindered but all by everything else and also being ethical in a way that they publish? Now, Sina, I always say to young researchers, the first thing that you must develop is not your career or your qualifications. You must develop a thick skin. If you want to be in academia, you need to have a very thick skin. <laughs> because what is going to happen is your um, research will be scrutinized and it will be critiqued. So develop a thick skin from the start and don't take everything personally. And, and I mean, I, this is one of what was one of my experiences. Um, as a early ac young academic, um, my very my first three articles was rejected outright. Hmm. Now, instead of trying to um, sit down and understand why I failed, I just shelved it and I tried a new one. I was and I shelved it and I tried, and the third one was rejected. And then, you know, I kind of hit my head a couple of times. I'm like a donkey. I really I, I struggled to learn. It seems. Um, and then I sat down and I asked myself, "No, what am I doing wrong?" Because at that point, um, I was really a, a co-publisher of two academic books, and it was so easy. Mm. And now I can't publish in, and then I, I realized a couple of things. One of them being, um, don't try and publish in nature <laughs> if you're 24 years old, um, <laughs> because sometimes, <laughs> sometimes you need to have a bit more experience. No, I'm just joking a bit. <laughs> I, I approached the wrong journals to start. I wasn't trying to publish in nature in any case, but I approached <laughs> the wrong journals. My style was totally wrong. I mean, I did everything absolutely wrong. But the, the worst thing that I did was take it personally. And I felt that this was a personal attack on me as an as a individual, as an academic. 
And that put me off. I, I think it took me, oh, I must have a look. I don't know how long before I actually published, uh, when I, since I came into the academia and then published my first article. Quite a long time. Because I, I felt like I'm, I'm not worthy of this. I can't do this. This is nonsense. Mm-hmm. These people are unfair. You know, the typical South African kind of perspective. Brr, we're going to get really cross and smack <laughs> everyone now. That's, that's how I think. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> no, not really. No. But that, that was how I did. I, I, I took everything too personally. And um, it made me fail in the long run. The second thing is that um, that I now realize and what I try and, and, and put across to, to my students that wants to go into research and uh, our younger staff and so on is find a mentor and work with a mentor. Work with people um, that has been through this process before. You know, lots of mentors don't care to be another author on your article. Or it might be someone in your research team that deserves to be there. But many times um, you will find that it's an older academic that's prepared to sit with you as a young academic and, and look through your work and explain to you how does this work, what, would, what do they feel, what could you have done better, what are you doing wrong, and so on. And be open to be mentored. Uh, I think if I had that in my earlier career, I probably would have published earlier mm. instead of trying to go at it alone. Um, and I think that's why it's also important for students to um, scrutinize study leaders and, and study promoters. Choose, choose the right person, not only the one that you feel comfortable with, but choose someone that you know will be able to assist you in getting to those academic goals. And one of them is now being being published. Um, and then uh, I, th- I think the, the main thing is, is to stay true to what you know. Everyone comes from a base discipline. You studied that because you, you feel comfortable with it. It's something that um, tweaked your interest. It's something that after you've studied a long period of time, 20, 30 years, okay, you feel comfortable <laughs> with it. But as a young academic, stick to that. Stick to what you know and work within that realm. But don't be closed for outside, um, call it interference. Allow people to interfere with what you are, what you are doing and, and listen to, to what they that what they are saying and be prepared to engage the uncommon stuff that you feel uncomfortable with be prepared to to step over that line and maybe take some time and dig into another discipline or another focus try to understand why people are criticizing you and uh, i mean all this is going to add a lot towards your your career development and becoming a stronger academic but i think at the end of the day one of the, the, the main thing still remains is don't Take all critique always as person, uh, um, very personal. Sometimes you do get reviewer number two. And, you know, we all joke about reviewer number two, yeah? <laughs> they, they're out there. <laughs> you get that person that will <laughs> slash and burn your publication or your article just because they can. Um, and it's sad that we have people like this. My mentor um, said to me once, review artic- an article the way you would like someone to review yours. Yeah. So if you put down mm-hmm. that steely comment, just consider it for a second and ask yourself, if I was on the other side, you don't know who, this, who wrote this article most of the time. Let's say I'm on, on the receiving part. What would you make with that comment? Will it be useful? Will it be constructive? Will it help you to write a better article? And if it doesn't, just delete it. And I'd rather delete it or find another way of giving positive comments. Because at the end of the day, I haven't come across... One article that a person has submitted by trying their luck to get published. You can always see there's a lot of work that goes into into a, a written piece. 
So uh, we must be kind of soft in our approach, but hard in our science. Mm. And uh, allow for growth within the younger corps of, of academics. Mm. I love your reflection on having thick skin, you know, and sort of being being that reviewer too or not being that reviewer too. Somebody recently told me that, you know, for every failure, so be that failed proposal or failed uh, publication, we should buy a plant. And I kind of thought about it and I realized that in a year I'll be living in a jungle probably, <laughs> you know, I'll be just surrounded by, by, <laughs> by plants. Um, but again, we don't really talk about it. And I think it's having that honors conversation, right? That our pa- not all our papers get published or they get published not after the first attempt is really, really important. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, true. I said to one of my, you, you know, one of my younger colleagues, um, I, I said to him once, if you, if you don't publish that paper, it doesn't mean it's, it's absolute nonsense now. It might mean something a bit later on so hang on to it mm. you know in a year's time you might reflect on it and then you out of your experience you're going to realize where you've, you've made your mistakes and then it might be a, a good paper and he actually did it he, he wrote his first paper and um, i was honest with him i said to him listen dude um you know me i know you we've known each other for many years but honestly this this is not going to fly i think you need to do this and this and this uh, he didn't have too much a very thick skin at that stage but he shouted and he went back a year later or so and he wrote a really good article that was published after that. Mm. So it's also to be, I think, as senior academics, to be honest with, um, with, with our colleagues, uh, but not in a threatening kind of way, but you know, to use your experience to also show them that um, it is a hard road. I mean, being in academia, it's fun. It's a, the best occupation in the world. I can't imagine anyone wanting to do anything else. But it's a hard road. It, you, you, you must put down the words on paper to get where you want to be and um, that that takes practice and, and it takes perseverance well thank you all for being with us today and before you go a few quick reminders about how you can stay connected with the podcast you can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at DisastersDecon. The podcast is available on all the major platforms. Please download, share, and most importantly, subscribe. And if you haven't already done this, we really appreciate your ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts. This will help us to continue making content for you. You've been listening to Disasters Deconstructed. And don't forget, disasters are not natural. See you next time. You've been listening to Casina, Jason and me, Devil Fanikar on Disasters Deconstructed Podcast.